0: Hi, I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and you're listening to the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, a podcast about lawyers' personal and professional lives. On today's show, my guest is a soon-to-be lawyer, Haley Taylor Schlitz, who this month, at the age of 19, graduated from Southern Methodist University Dedman School of Law. It's been said she's the youngest Black person to graduate from law school, and she's joined today with her mother, Dr. Maisha Taylor, who juggled her career as a physician while homeschooling her three children. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Haley, I know you just graduated, and I'm guessing you're are you prepping for the bar right now? Yes, yes, I am. Okay, and after the first or second week in July or whenever that is, what what comes next for you? What's your plan for this next year?
1: I want to go into educational policy. So uh, that has a lot of different avenues that you could take. You could work for an elected official. You can work for a nonprofit. You could be an elected official. You can work for an educational law firm. So um, whatever that avenue looks like for me, I want to go into educational policy. And do you have, I mean, can you tell me
0: if you have a job lined up yet or you're looking or... Well,
1: I have a lot of job offers. So um, I have a couple teaching offers, a couple elected officials. Um, I'm talking to a couple firms, uh, but nothing, I have not agreed to anything yet. So nothing is um, solidified, but I, mm-hmm. I have a lot of conversations going.
0: And let's uh, backtrack a little bit. Can you both tell us a story? Uh, Dr. Taylor, Haley is your oldest, right?
2: She is my oldest. Yes.
0: Tell me about why you and her father opted uh, for her to leave public school in the fifth grade and be homeschooled. If you can both tell me about that.
2: You want to go first, Hayes?
1: Okay. Yeah. It was multifaceted. Uh, There were a a couple reasons why uh, my parents decided to pull me out, me and my siblings out, and homeschool us. Um, I think there was it was um, a lot of like a couple major reasons. One of them being. The microaggressions and racism that was in the school uh there was a lot of like instances of just you know like like little struggles that and a lot of instances of big struggles they had a play on the war of northern aggression and made me the mulatto slave girl as the only black girl in the class so you know not a great idea and um so there were a couple other not great ideas and uh, a lot of passive aggressiveness but then um, i think the straw on the camel's back was when i couldn't get into the gifted and talented program They said that you needed to test in kindergarten. Uh, I was born in Los Angeles and we didn't move here until second grade. So um, that wasn't really an option. But there were other students who were testing. And so um, my mom and dad were like, you know, let's take let's take some more control over this um, since that's not a viable avenue and try to do this ourselves.
0: (laughs) And Dr. Taylor, I'm curious because I think for parents, when you have that moment, I mean, did you want to take it up the line? Or did you decide? Well, if this is just going to be taking it up the line for the next X number of years, I can spend my energy better elsewhere. What were you, what did you think when this came about?
2: That was very insightful and well put because I consider both of those options. So I'm a you know I'm a physician and I understand you know um, uh, professionals who are young and idealistic and as teachers tend to be, and you get into a system that kind of beats you down, right? And so I can recognize that in other professionals as well. So the teachers themselves, the administrators, the principal at the school, these, these women, because it was mostly women, so these women were fantastic women, right? They were very much understanding my point of view and um, they saw what we were going through, but they were limited in their ability to help because they're constricted by a system that's not designed for customization, right? So as I talked to the teachers, I primarily in third and fourth grade, she had the same teacher. So there was a teacher in third grade, and we loved this teacher. And when she became a fourth grade teacher, we actually requested to stay in our class. And we loved her again. But Haley, she wouldn't really um, do her homework. And that's not atypical of students, right? And you have to pull them and push them. But then when I got to the bottom of it, it was more, I don't really find this interesting, I already know how to do it. Things that, you know, gifted children say. You know, this is boring. So I talked to the teacher and she said, you know we can't test her for the gifted and talented program. That's done in kindergarten. And she's, we're in fourth grade now, so it's too late. But then she actually went on to say, you know, and I don't think it's worth the fight because all they do is a pullout program like a couple of times a week for an hour. So it doesn't really enhance their education. So I'm not sure that that's even something that you should pursue because what you're looking for is not going to be solved by that problem. So then I was a little bit demoralized, right? Because I thought, well, maybe if we could get her into a... situation where she was more challenged and it was more customized because it was less students maybe Um, she would uh, be more enthusiastic about learning we went to fifth grade between fourth and fifth grade in texas they have the star exam and there is other grades too where they have to take this exam i want to say it's every year but fourth and fifth grade between those two years that that the the spring or early summer is when they um, start to raise the stakes so if you don't pass this test now They they threaten your ability to proceed. So at that point, I felt like, well, you know, why are we studying for an end of year test? You got all A's and B's all year.
0: I'm going to get you to pause for just one moment. So the star exam, that is the state's it's assessment of academic readiness, right? It's a standardized test. It's supposed to assess readiness. Okay, go ahead. I just want to let people know. In Illinois, we call it MAP.
2: <laughs> yes, and I think in California they call it like the CAT test. So, yes, yeah. it's a, you know, so it's a yearly test to, to assess whether or not the student um, met the goals academically that they arbitrarily kind of assigned to different grade levels, you know. Um, so uh, Haley was doing fine, but I didn't like the high stakes of the exam. And I didn't like the math portion particularly because with this exam, the math was very, it's like new agey math. You know, and I put that in air quotes where it's, you know, regrouping and a lot of things that we kind of didn't do when we were children. So I couldn't help her with it to the extent necessary to do well. So it didn't matter that you got the answer correct. It mattered that you did this math this way. So I didn't like that either. And so when Haley stopped liking math, I started to supplement and enrich math. So after a while, it was I was supplementing and enriching it seemed like everything. So why why is she spending 36 to 40 hours a week at this institutional governmental building with a whole bunch of random people who have to get to know her every year? And the socialization is completely random. And I have to unpack, undo all of that, including the, the microaggressions, the racism, but also too, just the lack of being challenged academically. What are we doing? Why are we wasting our time? 40 hours a week, I can hire a tutor for a fraction of that time and she can cover more ground. And so that's what we ended up doing.
0: And did you, did you hire a
2: tutor or were you overseeing the education program? No. And I think that that's one of the misconceptions about homeschooling. It's this idea that mom is like putting the kids at the kitchen table and kind of teaching them you know, Bible verses and xenophobia. I, you know, I mean, that was, that was kind of my impression, (laughs) you know, but that's not what we did. And when I realized the the plethora of resources, you know, DFW Texas, but DFW specifically has a lot of, we have a very high density of homeschooling families. So there was- You mean Dallas-Fort Worth, right? Yes, Dallas-Fort Worth. So we have, you know, co-ops, we have- classes, online classes, you know, in-person classes, hybrid schools, like a lot of different options. So once I start to investigate those options, I felt like, okay, I can do this. Because I can tell you, Stephanie, that teaching and working with children is not my ministry. I am not a pediatrician. I am not a school teacher. It is not my ministry. So I hired help and or took my kids to people who actually does this way better than me for a living.
0: Do you have a sense? Because I have to say, this plan never occurred to me. I know that people started their pandemic pods, but this never occurred to me. How many, like approximately how many people in the homeschooling community outsource the teaching and get help?
2: You know, I think in our circles, you know, particularly everybody did, because that's how I met a lot of the the families that we interact with. So what what we have and what we did is a hybrid school. So the kids go to school two days a week. So either Monday Monday Wednesday or Tuesday Thursday, and they go at you know eight o'clock in the morning or nine o'clock, and they stay until three. And it's a standard brick and mortar. You know they take their lunch and their backpacks, and just like all of our visions of school, our experiences with school, that's what the kids do. But then on the alt- alternate days they work their syllabi, right? So they work the curriculum, they have books at home, the teacher's available online by phone, by text, by email to review and answer questions. The parent is there just to see to it that the children um, execute the the plan, basically. So what it teaches the children is time management. It allows them to work at their own pace. They get the lecture, they have some practice problems, and then the next day they go home and basically do homework, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not homework done you know, at 530 after, you know, soccer practice and before dinner and before bath and mom and dad are coming home from work and it's all chaotic. This is homework that's done intentionally the next day where they can go at their own pace. And if they need help, the teacher is actually available to offer that one-on-one help. So this was this was our life. So this the, the, the families in our circle, this is what we did. So you were at a place,
0: it was homeschool, but the children were at a s- school, for lack of a better term, two days a week. Yes. I'm curious, Haley, when you got to law school that first year, how did your experiences of having the K- or the fifth grade through 12th grade education somewhat or quite a bit different? How did that kind of figure in with how you adapted to law school? And what did you think based on your experiences about how law school tends to be taught?
1: I think that it really helped me. I think it sharpened some skills that are very necessary in law school, some time management and self-accountability are very necessary skills for um, any law student to have or at least quickly develop. Uh, and I think that the um, me being homeschooled and uh, doing that college-style hybrid school um, from 5th until 12th grade uh, was really, really helpful for me to develop those time management, self accountability skills. Because, like my mom said, you have to you know, do that homework the next day, and sometimes it's due online, or sometimes you have to bring it the next school day that you have. And you have to remember that, and you have to hold yourself accountable to actually get it done, manage your time so that all your assignments get done in a like good order so that way everything is quality and uh, you were able to ponder over it and get it done um, efficiently and then you have to bring it to class or you have to turn it in online by whatever 1159 or whatever and that's a lot of self-accountability and a lot of time management that's involved there and it was very like my skills are very sharpened and so when I got to law school of course there was also a lot of self-accountability and time management you have one exam at the end of the semester and of course public school is very different from that so That would have been its own experience from comparing public school K-12 through to law school. Law school is its own ball field. So, um, But law school, you have one exam at the end of the semester. So that self-accountability and time management is crucial to being able to read all the cases and do all the homework that you need to do um, so that way you understand it and it's done efficiently for the exam because there's no check-ins throughout the semester to make sure that you're following or make sure that you understand what you need to understand for the final. So you just have to be really holding yourself accountable and be a good student uh, to get ready for that exam. So I think that I was uh, much better prepared for law school in that regard um, than what public school could have done for me. Just the structure of homeschool and public school are very different, and homeschool does a good job structure, uh, sharpening those skills. And so um, I noticed that that was very very valuable, even the law schools different from both of those, homeschool and public school.
0: I'm curious what you thought of classes with the Socratic method, because I know it's kind of going away, but it's still a big piece of law school, and some people get very nervous about it. But I'm just thinking, if you spent your formative years in an education program where you're nurtured and loved, and you're not dealing with the, all the microaggressions that come with school settings, then Maybe people wouldn't be as anxious about the Socratic yeah. method. Because you know, there's probably not a lot of shaming at the school you went to two days a week at least not what kids in public school or private school go through so I'm curious about your thoughts on that
1: exactly and so that's a a lot of time what I think is overlooked with uh, sometimes overlooked with what COVID has done with uh, crisis induced distance learning Um, it does have a lot of negative ramifications but also has that taking those students who are discriminated and bullied out of that situation and so like you said in homeschooling there was a lot of personalization I was really able to delve into topics and law school again is very Different from that and public schools. So, preparation is hard for law school in that regard. But um, being cold called on is something that you are a lot more comfortable with, obviously, if you know the material. And um, if you know, you need to know how you study best and know who you are in order to understand the material. So you need to know that flashcards don't work for you. Uh, bullet points work better. You know, you like videos or you don't or podcasts or reading or whatever it is, however you best learn, knowing that about yourself and executing it. So again, that time management, that self-accountability and being that good student um, is really important in law school. And so being cold call on, of course, you're, you know, it's always uncomfortable, but you don't Have to be as nervous as if you don't know, or you're not following, or you're confused, and of course, you'll always. You know, at some point you'll be confused or not following in law school, of course, just like in any other area of life. But um, you are a lot more comfortable if you understand the material, of course, obviously. Um, Easier said than done, though. You have a lot of um, self-learning to do on top of learning the law, on top of learning how to do law school. So um, it's definitely, like I said, a ballpark of its own. But I think that homeschool prepared me in that regard of knowing myself as a student and how I learned best so I could uh, execute that in law school. And
2: I'll add, too, you know, I mean, when you are homeschooled and you only have one, you're the only student in the class, there is no hiding behind, you know, or daydreaming. I mean, literally, there's a person talking to you and you're expected to fully engage and answer questions and challenge and argue and debate whatever. Right. And the student is their full participation is completely expected because honestly, if they're not participating, it's just a one way conversation with one person talking to another. So, you know, I think that, you know, it, it, you know, to, for Haley, like she said, cold calling to have an answer ready is the expectation in homeschool when you're the only student in the class or there's only a couple or few students in the class. So I think that it could be used to as to her advantage, if if yeah. allowed, yeah.
0: Very interesting, and I'm curious too, Haley. So when you graduated from homeschool, I want to say you started college when you were um, that you would have been 12. Is that right? I was 13. 13. Okay. Well, and what was that like? Going and sitting in classes and how? did an adult go with you i mean what did you, how what was that like
1: yeah so i mean it wasn't uh, to answer that second part yes an adult did go with me uh, i couldn't drive obviously but on top of that my dad would sit out there and wait um for the class to be over it, you know for a variety of reasons it, you know by the time he got home he would have had to come back but on top of that um you know i'm a young student on a college campus so um he is there to be that support and uh Guide. But on top of, uh, but to answer your first part of your question, I, uh, yeah, no, uh, the homeschooling, it's called college style school. So, uh, of course, I felt very prepared going into college. Uh, going into a college classroom uh, with the workload and also the structure. Uh, Of course, the style of work or what I'm going to be taught is very different. So that was nerve wracking. Of course, I feel like any student who's a senior in high school going into college is, you know, I can imagine apprehensive or nervous about what is this work going to look like compared to what I was doing in high school. But on top of that, a normal public school student has to manage their own schedule, sign up for their own classes, has to make that transition, that life transition from moving out or if they're not moving out, just growing into a different phase of life. So um, at homeschool did remove some of those transitions um, in that I was already used to managing my own schedule. Again, that self, self-accountability I was used to, that time management I was used to, um, navigating with technology I was used to. So there were a lot of transitions that were at least minimized, um, if not completely removed uh, because of my homeschooling foundation. Um, again, a college-style school, it does have uh, a lot of similarities to college um, in that in those regards.
0: And Dr. Taylor, what, if any sort of, I mean, did you pull back when she was looking at colleges? Because if you have a 17-year-old who's thinking about where to go, in theory, we're supposed to let them decide, right? In theory. (laughs) But if you have a 13-year-old, it's a little different. So how did you approach the decision on where Haley would go to school and whose decision was it?
2: Yeah, you know, in a lot of ways, it made it a little easier because practically, logistically, you know, sending her away with at a uh, another level of consideration. So, did she really want to do that, and and did she understand what all that entailed? So, th- we looked at local schools, and Dallas Fort Worth, thankfully, has a lot of great universities that are within driving distance. So, we didn't have to look far. She applied all over Spelman. Um, uh, I don't know, other schools um, where you applied Louisiana, to school in Boston. California. So, I mean, she got into all of the schools she applied to, so that was great. But the the final consideration, I think, came down to where could she have the most support? And that was going to be in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Then we looked at you know, UT Dallas, uh, University of Texas at Dallas, and the demographics there. And the average student on campus is a 24, 25-year-old uh, man right? Um, Asian man. And the demographics at Texas Women's University is a 35, 34, 35-year-old woman of color. And so we felt like, well, you know, for her in a classroom, trying to form a study group or interact with teachers, which would be a more comfortable environment for her to be at a very scientific. Um, in a mathy sort of tech sort of environment, studying education, which is less tech, less you know, because she was thinking about education as as well. She was considering medicine, but I think that that was me, that was my hopes and dreams, right? But I knew <laughs> soon that she was going to um, not be not be a physician right away, anyway. So we selected Texas Women's one because it's a public school, two because all of her. Um, um, Credits up to that point, community college credits, would be counted and fit right into a degree plan. It would keep the cost down. And honestly, I could pay cash so she didn't have to take out student loans. And so if she decided to pursue a second bachelor's or, you know, because maybe she wants that typical college experience, I told myself as a parent, I'm not taking this away from her. She can graduate at 16 or 17 from college. And honestly, I paid for it. She was going to be in school anyway. She has a bachelor's degree in something. So now at least she has a foundation and she wasn't bored. She learned a lot of good things and now she can go to wherever she wants to go and get a second bachelor's or a master's or a PhD. She can still have that experience. So um, I kept her close to home so she could live at home so I can help her with the executive functioning that sometimes is lacking when you're dealing with teenagers. Make sure that she does the things that she's supposed to do with oversight and support and then, like I said, I could pay for it, and so she didn't have any student debt coming out of undergrad.
0: And why did you, is your family opt for the accelerated program with homeschool as opposed to just staying there until she turned eighteen?
2: You know, it's very interesting because you know we kind of, we kind of didn't opt for it, right? Haley sort of, I think, pushed the issue. So when I, you know, my my plan for her was you know, like everybody's plan for their kid probably like go to Harvard, right? Like, you know, or or Stanford where, you know, what, what do they require that I have to get Haley ready for? So SAT subject test, ACT, SAT, you know, uh, exam, um, what sort of classes are required, the whole thing, right? So that was kind of my roadmap. And Haley just was not on board with that, you know? And so she would push back. She didn't want to do the AP exams, you know, take the AP classes, the things that were required. So when we had a conversation, she was about 12 at the time and basically kind of started to say, well, so let me understand. You want me to spend the next, you know, six years or so, you know, quote, getting ready to enter into this environment that once I arrive, it's still competition. It's still, you know, me doing more, proving myself so that then four years later, I can do it all over again with some graduate or professional program. And basically she said, you know, I don't know that I want to do all of that. Like, I don't know that that's worthy of my life energy, basically. And so I, as a mom, heard her say, I don't like this plan. I'm not on board with this plan. Um, And I'm not sure that I want to go to college at all if the next six years of my life is going to be geared towards just college prep for me to do it all over again for graduate school. So I had to regroup and and change the plan that I had. Like I said, my plan was for her to go to medical school, go to Harvard and go to medical school. Like, you know, that. what other plan is there? So I had to reevaluate with my husband what that meant. So I took some time and basically had a conversation with him and Haley. And I said, okay, well, I have a different idea. How about if you want to go to college, why don't we just get you college ready? It doesn't have to take six years, just however long you take. And when you're ready for that, then we'll start college and it doesn't have to take six plus four plus four years. We'll just do it at your own pace. She was on board with that. So we did the, the homeschool hybrid and, you know, did the pre-algebra and algebra and all the things that kids do in middle school, got her to high school. And then um, she, Texas has a uh, an exam called the Texas Success Initiative, which is a college readiness exam. So it's like an Accuplacer that's been, you know, like modified for the purpose of, adjudicating whether or not a student is ready to enter college and take college classes. If you have an SAT score, an ACT score that's high enough, it exempts you from that, um, you know, evaluation. And if you have a star, you know, exam score, it exempts you as well. But Haley, the star, we hadn't taken the star because we were a homeschool family She did take the SAT and ACT, but that was really when she was young because I was doing that for the talent searches. So I had her sit for the TSI. And when she passed all three parts, so there's a writing, there's a reading comprehension and a math. Once she passed all three parts, honestly, there was no reason to keep her in high school because she had demonstrated competency for college level work. So I graduated her from homeschool high school and allowed her to take the core classes at TCC, which is our local community college, so that she can get ready for university.
0: That's very interesting. I'm going to pause you and let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to come back to, you were talking about how you reshifted what you wanted for Haley based on what she wanted. Because sometimes I think with parents of children who do quite well, it's um, it's hard for us to step up off that thought. Sometimes for what we want and what they want, we'll be right back.
1: Be the best resource you can for your Spanish-speaking clients with the Spanish Group's legal translation service. Experienced translators ensure accurate translation of your documents with same-day delivery. Confidentiality is ensured and the Spanish Group guarantees acceptance for certified translations. All that and their rates are competitive. If you need other languages, the Spanish Group translates in over 140 languages. Mention LegalTalk 20 when you request your quote for 20% off your first translation. Visit TheSpanishGroup.org. Delegate out those tasks that take up your
0: time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change... Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S T A F I.cc and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet
2: ones that are time consuming and error prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at InfoTrack.com simple.
0: And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, I'm speaking with Haley Taylor Schlitz, who at nineteen is reportedly the youngest black person to graduate from law school. And she's also joined today with her mom, Doctor Maisha Taylor. She's a physician and she um as she said earlier in the show, some of the homeschooling was outsourcing, but she was also overseeing the process. And what led to the decision was the family found that They did not have equity in the public school system. So um, let's go back to what you were saying about the decision to let Haley do basically what she wanted to do. Um, And I'm actually, let's start with Haley first. Haley, how did you convince your parents what was right for you? And it might have been a little different than what uh, they thought you should be doing.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I think on one hand, Earlier on in the process, they had the vision, and I was just along for the ride. Um, in fifth grade, when I was in public school, there wasn't a whole lot of passion. Uh, for learning, as we talked about a little bit earlier. So um, they had the vision. My mom pulled me out and homeschooled me. So it kind of started there. Um, But when my mom was talking about redoing that whole plan, um, it was really just that communication. You know, I was talking to her about how I didn't want to do four years of college, four years of medical school, however many years of residency, depending on what what area you want to go into. I didn't want to do all that. And I was like, Ten and that's already 14 15 years. You know, like that's 28 29 and that's normal for doctors and people who want to do that. It's like, yeah, okay, that's normal. But for me, I was like, okay, then I don't want to do that. You know, that's too, that's too long. And so after the communication, she had come up with a a new plan, just like she said, um, to just do the curriculum at the rate that I needed to go at. Um, and so it gave it put the motivation, but also like the the burden, for lack of a better term, on me. If you don't want to take 18 years to get through school then work and get done with high school and then go to college and you could do college all year round if you want and get that done and then go to grad school much earlier than you would have. And so, um, like I said, a better word, I guess, than burden is, for me at least, more of a like motivate motivation uh, to do that. And so I, um, after my mom was like, okay, well, let's just get you college ready as soon as possible then, because basically I told her I didn't want to go to college. So she was like, to the contrary, let's get you ready for college as soon as possible. And so um, that, was, that looked like, you know, taking the ACT, taking the SAT, you know, those standard things, but also... Doing less standard things, taking uh, geometry over the summer in three months instead of a year. Some state, some students take it for a year, or taking algebra two in one semester. When again, some students take it for a year, and so um, you know, there were also the non-traditional elements of my journey, obviously of doing it at an accelerated rate but again that's exactly where I needed to be to stay motivated about school to stay engaged and interested in learning um you know when when material is way too difficult you get those students at out. you know I'm not understanding this anyway I just want to get through and pass I just want to go home I just want to do other things that I care about I'm not understanding this I'm just going to try to, you know, just kind of float by. And then when you have the students that already understand everything, but the same, you know, like I did geometry in three months, but if it was, if I was forced to take it for a year, there's another nine months where I'm just like, okay, you know, like, I don't care. So you also lose that student's engagement and that interest. So it was where I needed to be to stay engaged and stay interested and just intellectually challenged. So it wasn't a lot of convincing. They just kind of like opened up the, the opportunities to me. Uh, You know, we'll just get you college ready as soon as possible. And then I was able to excel and really just take off.
0: And Dr. Taylor, can you tell us about your other two children? and how you worked with them to figure out what they wanted to do, because they're in graduate programs too, right? And they're younger than Haley.
2: Yes. So Ian, he is um, now 16 years old, but, you know, the benefit um, that Ian has is he has more experienced parents, you know? So we've been through this before. So he graduated when he was 15 from the University of North Texas, which was last year. So now he's in his first year of an MBA program at Tarleton State. And, he um, established his own company, which is like a video game um, e-tournament animation studio that has switched from in-person to online because of COVID, and now t- beginning to transition back to in-person. And he's been he's been running that for several years, right? And you know, Ian, he you know this this whole now that he's older, this whole online community. You know, they'll pay him for his animations and he tutors and teaches like homeschool students how to animate. So he has a whole thing. So for him, he said, You know, I don't know that I want to spend my life working for someone. So I'd like to learn how to run my own business and maybe hire people to outsource things that I don't want to do or, you know, collaborate with people. So that's why he decided on an MBA right now because he just kind of wanted to keep going. And now he's considering maybe a PhD to become a college professor in learning technologies, but he's exploring that now. He still has another year and some months of his MBA program. So that's Ian. And then Hannah is my youngest. She's 14. And again, smarter parents. So, you know, I was able to um, have her start at the community college with, you know, music lessons. And I think a lot of parents don't even realize that Music lessons are so much cheaper at the community college, right? We're paying, you know, private teachers sometimes a dollar a minute almost for, you know, especially if you you play something like the harp, like Haley plays, you know, and even piano. Whereas if they can just take a semester class at the community college, they get a thirty-minute or an hour, you know, long lesson, and the whole semester you pay a hundred dollars, right? So, and they get all of this instruction. So. I started doing that with my youngest, Hannah, earlier because I was aware of the resource. So now she is 14 and she's a rising junior at Texas Women's University, which we chose for her, again, because we're familiar. We know the curriculum. We know the the leadership because of Haley. When Haley was at Texas Women's University, interestingly, she had she was getting a degree in education, which they call interdisciplinary studies. But it's really teacher training program. But she was only 16 at the time of graduation. So during this program, she couldn't sit for the Texas exam, which is a teacher certification exam for the state of Texas, whereby the teacher has to receive the certification in order to be hired by a public school that receives federal funds, right? So it's kind of a big deal. But she couldn't even sit for this exam until she was 18, and she was getting her degree at 16 years old. So the dean and the department actually created a whole new major, right, degree plan for students to accommodate not just Haley, but all students, any student who wanted to go into educational leadership and not necessarily become certified teachers for classroom instruction. So that was pretty awesome. So the reason why I say that is because this university has been very accommodating, very welcoming. So when Hannah came up, I'm like, well, what better school? Again, you have no debt. We're paying cash for it. And we know the administration and we know that they will accept you as a young student. So um, that's where the other two kids are right now.
0: And Haley, when and why did you shift from wanting to be a teacher to wanting to be a lawyer?
1: Yeah, so it was kind of at the same time, less of a shift. I wanted to be an ER doctor like my mom, and so I started off as a major in chemistry. But around halfway through undergrad is when you start thinking about MCAT prep, or if you're wanting to go to law school, LSAT prep, or any other exam prep that you might need for um, after graduation. And so um, that kind of did spark a conversation with my parents is like, OK, well, you know, you're about to not just this exam, but, you know, you're about to transition. You know, uh, graduation is going to be around the corner before you know it. And what do you want to do with your life? You know, what do you want to do with your career? What impact do you want to make on the world? And that was really like, you know, a, a, like a soul searching kind of moment where um, you really think about, you know, like what's next? What do next steps look like? And so that's when the pondering happened. And that's when the shift fr- uh, in my major came from. Uh, went from chemistry to education. And at that same time, I was thinking, again, what do I want to do? I look back on my own journey and how fortunate I was to have parents that uh, knew of the opportunity to say no uh, to the school and homeschool me, pull me out and homeschool me, but also had the ability to do that because there are so many families out there who can't. And I was very fortunate to have parents who knew about it and could. Um, But, you know, like it's you know, this is a fact I should be able to have stayed in public school and been a 19 year old law graduate. Um, This just shows that, you know, maybe there's a lot of students out there who just might not be be reaching their full academic potential um, as soon as they could be and maybe are being overlooked. And when I thought about it like that, I was like, man, I really want to try to help fix that, you know, so again, I switched my major to education, getting that education on our system, on our K through 12 system, learning the ins and outs of it, learning what teachers have to deal with, what they have to do, what the requirements are, what the classroom is like, Um, getting that foundation of what, what changes are needed in our K-12 system because, of course, it's one thing to be a student. It's another thing to be a teacher. Those are two completely different looks on the educational system. And so um, I got that foundation. But at that same time as I was switching my major, again, we were still talking about exam prep. We were still talking about uh, post-undergrad post Next steps. And so that also, like I said, it wasn't a transition from being a teacher to being a lawyer. Um, It was a transition from wanting to be a doctor to wanting to be a lawyer because um, I switched my major education to get that foundation. But I like to think of it as like two main umbrellas. You can change the system from the inside, being that teacher of color that fosters a great learning environment and, and, you know, increases diversity, equity, inclusion, access, all of that good stuff. uh, This really very necessary, but changes inside the system. But then you also have changes that could be made outside the system. You know, their own teachers can only do so much if the law is restricting what they can and can't say. So. Going to law school and changing the nuts and bolts of how it operates is also um, uh, something that I wanted to do. I wanted to have that flexibility to be able to, like I said, have that strong foundation and understanding and get my hands in, get my hands dirty in what the educational system looks like right now, what the K 12 system looks like right now, but also have the opportunity to change how it functions in general because it desperately needs an update. It hasn't had one since it was created. America's changed a lot since it was created. So, um, I wanted to have that opportunity. So that foundation, but also the opportunity to have two different ways of changing the system. Well,
0: and I think with your experiences you had when you were still in school, I think families of black children across the country have similar stories, sadly, based on your life experiences and also what you've learned so far. What are your thoughts on how staff, teachers and administrators can do more to support children of color? in school. Maybe it's behaviors, it's perhaps it's rules, all of that. What do you think?
1: I think that it's really hard for teachers to be able to do um, anything personalized in our K-12 system just because the, the ratio is like 40 to 1. So I think that that's where I would want to start with policies and changes is trying to get those classrooms to shrink and they've been growing. And that's partially because we don't have a lot of people that want to go into the teacher workforce because they don't get paid enough. So um, maybe starting there, increasing the salary, um, desperately looking for diversity in the teacher workforce, uh, and then trying to shrink down that class size a little bit so that way they can address things like behavioral issues, but also inequities, um, access, be able to teach more personalized education to those students so that way they really learn and understand the material and not just memorize it and regurgitate it. So it's really like, there's a lot of before you before you can even get to that conversation there's like a lot of in a, like things that cause that to be not possible yet and so um you definitely uh i think is deeper than a lot of people realize and you take a couple steps back as to like where can we begin to address the actual disease and not just the symptoms because there's you know the crown act which is so so important to stop discrimination based on hair in the school and in, in our schools because you have like you're talking, oh, there's a lot of people out there talking about mental health for example and that is very important and crucial to have a conversation about but what's causing these mental health issues is something that's very important to look at too not just the symptom that they have depression but why Why do they have depression? There's a lot of microaggressions in our schools that's not helping their depression. I promise you that. And so implementing things like the crown act is something that's important to make students feel more welcome and obviously feeling more welcome is going to create a better environment for learning if they have a better environment for learning they'll get better grades which is only going to help their mental health they'll make their parents proud they'll make their family proud their guardians their siblings their just their whole village proud and then they'll be proud of themselves too but uh it really does start with uh more uh, it's more rooted than i think a lot of people realize
0: just for our listeners, the Crown Act, that stands for create a respectful and open world for natural hair. Yes, right? absolutely. Yes. And is that um, something that has been adopted by states? That's my impression.
1: Yes, it's been adopted by a few, but right now it's being pushed to be a national law. So mm. that way, you know, the states that probably would never want to get, you know, catch up, <laughs> they, they don't have a choice.
0: <laughs> well, and this is something you did some pageant work. Yes. Right. Yes. And this was that was your platform. That was was the Crown Act. Yes, it was. Yes. I see. Um, And Dr. Taylor, what are your thoughts for that question that I asked her? What could school staff, teachers and administrators, what do you think they could do better to support children of color?
2: You know, it is very interesting, of course, you know, diversifying workforces, whether it's physician workforce or teacher workforce is going to go a long way. Um, and helping professionals understand each other and various cultures and have a sensitivity and respect for um, differences. And so I think that that needs to be something that's on the at the forefront, especially as our country becomes more diverse, right? And diversity is should be celebrated. it's 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 great for us to we're all different. but we have these arbitrary boxes that we put each other in. And that informs our opinion of groups of people. And I think that we all can agree that that's not something that's an accurate measure of a human being. So we would, you know, be better off as a as a global you know, society, much less an American society, if we could do away with that. And of course, you know, when you're working with um, malleable minds and educating them and informing their opinions about the world, it starts there. And that's why a lot of teachers go into teaching because they realize the significant impact that they can have on changing the world through children. So I think that's huge. But I also think that systems um, that have been established need to be revisited. So if you have a child that doesn't quite fit, it's almost like, you know, one of the questions or one of the criticisms I get with Haley or my kids being accelerated is, well, what about their childhood and what about their socialization? And, you know, those are legitimate questions that I had to figure out for myself and answer. But when you have, like, these phenomenal young people like Simone Biles, who was also homeschooled, but she is who she is, nobody questions her, quote, socialization or challenges her childhood experience, you know. Or, you know, the every child star on the Disney Channel or on Nickelodeon, you know, these child you know, musicians, Beyonce, you know, like we celebrate, you know, athletics, we celebrate entertainment, we celebrate, um, you know, musicians and artists in this regard. But when somebody's talent and they're very precocious and academic, somehow um, we want to diminish it or say that we can't accelerate and challenge them in this space and showcase um, them in this space because it diminishes other kids. Well, does LeBron being, you know, I don't know, is he, you know, six eight? I don't know how tall he is. But does that diminish short people like Simone Biles? No, you find a different uh, place where you excel. And so I think that we do children a disservice when we pack them all into – a certain uh, cohort of educational level based on age alone. And that's what we do. So we have a 10 year old that may be ready to start studying algebra, but then we have to talk about the socialization. So if we skip the kid to the ninth grade where we typically teach algebra. Now, because they're not ready to interact with boys or go to homecoming, suddenly they can't learn algebra. We need to separate academics from the social, right? The kid can still sit in an algebra class and learn algebra and then go and play with other 10-year-olds and be perfectly normal and fine. And in homeschool, homeschooling, I found that that was something that was, um, we were able to create that. Whereas in public school, you have to give up something to get something. So I think that we, those are two main things, diversifying teacher workforce and celebrating diversity across the board among all humans. Now I'm not talking about just race. I'm talking about just period, right? And then realizing that because we have unique individuals here that the system does not allow for people to move outside of their preconceived boxes or notions of what where they should be in their educational journey or else they have to sacrifice something else. And we need to just disconnect the two, socialization and education. I mean, academics.
0: Mm, that's really interesting. So If you, and you probably do hear from parents who have children in grade school and they don't feel welcome or maybe they don't feel
2: challenged, what advice do you have for them if they ask? I typically give them the advice. I understand that not everybody can homeschool, right? I spent, I poured a lot of time and energy and and money into my children. And and I don't want to make it, I don't want to be flippant about the amount of, you know, um, resources that were required of me, just time and energy, right? That's why I'm celebrating this 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 moment, right? Because it was a lot of time and energy. It doesn't happen in a vacuum without the support. It's not possible. So I want to put that out there. Like, I understand. But what parents can do if you need, you know, let's say you need a public school for daycare because maybe yeah, I need to work and somebody needs to watch these kids during the day. And even if they're not learning anything, at least they're hopefully in a safe place. We hope schools can be safe, right? A safe place and they get what they can get. But then after school or on summers, weekends, you know, evenings, when you do have the time, that time now has to be more intentional, right? You need to now... Um, realize that you are responsible for raising this human, this human being, this little tiny human being into a hopefully self-sufficient, society contributing, full-grown adult, right? We're raising adult here. And as such, you know that's your responsibility and not necessarily society's responsibility. Although society benefits when we invest, if you um, defer or uh, outsource, you know that responsibility then you kind of get what you get right could be good probably won't be so you have to take responsibility for raising your child which also means responsibility for their education and seeing to it that they're educated it does not mean that you have to educate them and that's the thing about homeschool that people misunderstand i am not a lawyer i'm not i don't have an mba like all the things that my kids are doing i don't i don't know how to play the harp like i I utilize the village. I utilize community resources to help me make these children their best versions of themselves. And so I would urge parents who um want to try to change their mindset about things if you even if you use public school, they're still other ways you can enrich your child, even if it's just spending time with them, watching movies and articulating the point of the movie or writing a paragraph about it. Like it lots, lots of things can be done if you start to realize that you are responsible for creating this adult as their parent. And Haley,
0: for people who also had the homeschool experience and are getting ready to start law school, do you have any advice for them?
1: That's a great question. I think that it applies to... All law students, but I think that it could be um, particularly applied to homeschoolers, just because I know that this is something that I experience, so it's probably similar. Uh, you hear a lot of horror stories about law school. You hear uh, that if you're in a relationship, you have to break up. It's very competitive. They'll tear pages out your books. It's a curve, and somebody's gonna have to fail, even if you got an A. They're hiding answers and giving you wrong information. It's just, it's, it's very competitive, very toxic. You'll hear that law school has the highest like depression rates of any. Graduate school, They really try to like scare people away. So um, you'll hear that. And obviously coming from an environment of homeschooling where like we were talking about earlier, a lot of times it does provide room for nurturement and just not, you know, it removes a lot of microaggressions too oftentimes because, you know, you're with your family or you're with your village um, and then you feel like you're going into this very hostile environment not to mention it's law school it's not easy and you don't know the law and you have to learn yourself and how you study best and uh, if you haven't already mastered that and then you have to learn the law you have to learn law school and on top of all these terrible rumors um, it's definitely something that I was I heard a lot about you know you're not going to have a life and I was like Oh my gosh, like, wow. So um, no, definitely anybody who was homeschooled and is considering going to law school or is going to law school. Um, it is not as bad as how you will hear. Um, you know, nobody has to fail. That's not, I mean, like, at least in most law schools, you know, nobody has to fail. There is a curve. So maybe you would have done better if the top student didn't get, like, a 98. But that doesn't mean you're failing. Um, they're not ripping pages out of your books. You still get to have free time and be a normal person. You have time for yourself, time for your relationship. You, I mean, like, even if you want to be the valedictorian, you have time for all of that. And, again, it's that time management that um, I hope is comforting to any homeschooler who's considering or going to law school that— the homeschool probably really develop that time management for you. And I mean, if not law school will, will whip you into shape, but hopefully you have a little bit more of a foundation in that area. And so you can like man, like, Just like you make time for homework you should make time for yourself and it's almost like a promise to yourself like I'm gonna watch this show tonight I'm gonna get my homework done now so not only do you feel more efficient when you're working knowing that you don't have to watch the clock like oh my gosh it's so late I'm not even gonna get time to take care of myself like you've made time for that like at 10 o'clock whatever I'm doing, I'll just finish a sentence or whatever I'm in the middle of and I'm gonna go take a shower and do whatever else you have planned and you promise that to yourself, then while you're working, even if you didn't get your work done before that time, you can always come back after. But while you're working, you're efficient in its quality because you're not there like, man, I don't want to be doing this anymore. I've been working all day and I don't know when this is going to end. You know, you have those times. And like I said, just like you make time for homework, you make time for class, you're carving out time in your schedule. It's a block on your calendar. Make a block for yourself too. And um, it won't nearly be as it won't be nearly as bad as what you've heard. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. You know, it's law school, but um, it's not going to be, you know, you're going to fall into depression and break up with your significant other and fail out because somebody else did better. Like, it doesn't have to be like that. I mean, it it can be. I mean, you know, some of those rumors do have truth to them if you let it be. But you have a lot more control than what it makes it sound than what it sounds like you do.
0: I think that's great advice. And that's everything I have for the two of you today. I want to thank you both for coming on the show.
2: Thank you for having thank us. Thank you. Yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah. And listeners, thank you for joining us. If you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple podcast. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journals Asked and Answered.